And we can take those moments of crisis and conflict and work through them to hope for and to create magical moments. You are listening to the Music and Peacebuilding Podcast, a professional development network at musicpeacebuilding.com. Exploring intersections of peacebuilding, sacredness, community creativity, and imagination through research and story. Karen Hendricks is Associate Professor of Music and Chair of Music Education at Boston University. Her research interests include social psychology and social justice in music learning contexts with a particular focus on student motivation and musical engagement. Before moving to the collegiate level, Karen enjoyed a successful public school orchestra career, where she was a recipient of the United States Presidential Scholar Teacher Recognition Award, among other honors. She has published in numerous research journals and is co-author of Performance Anxiety Strategies, published by Roman and Littlefield. She is lead editor of Queering Freedom, Music, Identity, and Spirituality, and co-editor of Narratives and Reflections in Music Education, Listening to Voices Seldom Heard, and two forthcoming volumes on music, spirituality, and well-being. This podcast starts a three-part series on Karen Hendricks' 2018 book, Compassionate Music Teaching. Our first episode explores the lives and influences of Suzuki, Steve Massey, Dorothy DeLay, and Brian Michaud. We look at the patience, embodiment, community, flow, and imagination of compassionate music teaching. We begin our conversation speaking of gifts of slowness and the unprecedented opportunity of this pandemic as a reset. Yeah, and and do we even have the luxury of a reset? Uh, Because in every moment uh, we are working, we're being asked to produce. Uh, We're in a very strongly productive society. And so this idea of reset is is so delicious, but I don't know how often we we are given that privilege or opportunity, uh, but it is so important. And if I might jump right to COVID-19, what, what a wonderful opportunity for a reset with all of the uh, struggles and, and traumas associated with the pandemic. Uh, I think many of us have hoped that it might become a reset for all of us. And we have yet to see if that's really the case or if we're just rushing to a vaccine um, it, so we can continue life as we've known it. Um, but I think there are many people who are taking this as an opportunity to go deep and reflect on on how to do things differently. And so, yes, I, I would hope there would be a, an opportunity for a reset for us, but at the same time, uh, life, that hurricane of, of activity is still flurrying around us. And sometimes it is important maybe to uh, turn off the computer, um, maybe to just take a moment. Um, uh, I'll, I'll come back to a story of me as a school teacher in a minute, but just take a moment whenever we can to to take even a, a small, tiny reset um, in every day. I remember as a, a young school teacher, 
having students around me in every every possible moment um, and before classes, before school, after school, as is the case with most music teachers, we, we tend to have a following of students who want to just come and hang out um, and spend time with us and with one another um, in music classrooms. But I was teaching on stage. I didn't even have a music room in my first job. And um, there was nowhere. I had no office. I had nowhere to go and take a moment to reflect and reconsider and <laughs> have a deep breath. Um, so I found that I, I had the key to the, the light booth in the, in the auditorium. So at times I would, I would sneak up and go just take a deep breath, um, <laughs> even for 10 minutes. Um, and I'd hear people down, where's Miss Hen? Where did Miss Hen go? And I'd, I'd just be up there, okay, just a minute longer to breathe. And then to be able to go back down and, and be much more uh, present with the students. I talk about that as well in the Compassionate Music Teaching book about um, teaching at, at the university level and running from one thing to the next and mm -hmm. saying to the students, I just, I'm sorry, I'm frustrated, I'm flustered. It's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. I just need a moment to meditate. And after I said that three times, one of the students said, well, Dr. Hendricks, why don't we meditate? And we took a moment right there, uh, put the, the class content aside just long enough to practice some Alexander technique, uh, just a, a little bit of breath work, maybe 10 minutes. And then I think we got much more done because we had taken the time to reflect and, and reset, as you're saying. Yeah, I remember when I was interviewing a scholar, a Mr. Rogers, for the very first podcast, I was reflecting with that scholar just how much when I learned as a first-year teacher to slow down, I, I realized that that my speed was in many ways kind of getting in the way of relationship and being able to to actually enter the music. That reminds me of one of my um, conducting teachers at the University of Illinois who helped me realize when uh, uh, being a string teacher, um, mm. there's such a propensity for string students to rush. And the more students would rush, the harder I would work to get them to slow down. My body gestures would get bigger and more aggressive and all in, in at the aim of having them rush less. But uh, he, he pointed out to me, um, and it was life-changing for me, not only with conducting, but everything. The more I am aggressive, the bigger I become the bigger they are going to be, not only louder, but faster. And so it was actually doing the opposite of what I mm -hmm. wanted. And so that's that's a life lesson as well as a conducting lesson, um, that if we want... Um, if we want more relaxation, we need to relax. <laughs> if we want more focus, uh, we need to take the time to focus. And it's never wasted time. Uh, we, we often save time by so doing. In 2011, Karen Hendricks published an article on the great violin pedagogue Suzuki. Deeply rooted within Zen Buddhism, Suzuki models a philosophy of musicking in which wisdom is embodied through action. Hendricks writes, Suzuki's approach was to clear his mind, carefully reflect about himself, 
and then turn reflection into action in order to improve. From a Suzuki viewpoint, knowing within how, about, and why is embodied through the art of doing. Just as a praxial philosopher would never leave musicking out of musical experience, Suzuki would never have left action out of knowing. So let's talk about tone. I was so fascinated in your article because I think that, that because I'm still on a journey of getting to know Suzuki that I, I didn't understand the relationship between tone and a musician's soul. So you wrote that Suzuki taught that it was through the spiritual nature of tone that one could sense the quality of a musician's soul. Can you speak to us about why tone matters as a spiritual way of finding the center of our being? That is a really complex question, <laughs> but that's great. And um, I would I would focus on vibration first. I mean, if if we're taking this in the way that I believe Suzuki interpreted this, it it, it is truly considering that there is a vibration between people. Um, and I expand a little bit more on that in compassionate music teaching with the idea of of. Um, you know how how we there's there's science um, that tells us that we really can feel and experience what other people are feeling and experiencing. So it's not just this woo woo out there idea, um, but but there is a tangible vibrational connection between humans. So I think Suzuki was on to something um, there with the idea that music or sound waves can be some sort of mechanism for that connection or that communication from person to person. Um, so uh, to him, it was absolutely critical that you were doing two things simultaneously. You were teaching students uh, how to hear and recognize and produce a solid uh, resonant tone um, and uh, without, without any sort of... Um, uh, anything getting in the way of that tone, you know, not too much force, not too much pressure, um, mm -hmm. but but having this just this clear focused tone. So that was the first part. But the second part was his belief that that tone was connected to a person's character. So and and the more I think about this from a psychological standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, some of my research in performance anxiety um, plays a role here as well. If I am holding back on my authentic self, if there's something I don't want to share, or if there's, you know, if there's something I'm hiding, or if I'm just downright afraid, um, then I'm going to limit my uh, free expression. Um, I may not want to, but that may be something that is some sort of inner turmoil inside of me. So the more authentic, the more honest, the more vulnerable I allow myself to be, uh, the more that authentic tone quality can come through. He had more esoteric terms for that, just basically saying, uh, if you have a good character, you have a good tone. Um, but I really think there is something to that. Uh, from a scientific and psychological standpoint, that that we really can connect uh, with other people through the expressions that come through our instrument. So Suzuki writes a lot about love and especially the word heart. Um, 
and, and he he writes that the purpose of music education maybe is to make the world more peaceful and loving. So can you talk about where you see Suzuki's intentions as he uses these words of heart and love in his language? Yeah, I think um, having uh, he he was living during World War Two, um, mm. and I I think we have to have that context in mind. That um, is someone who had spent time in Germany and Japan, um, you know, I and and experienced World War II, I think he was very concerned about, you know, world peace. Are we going to get to a point where we can get along? You know, is the, is this really the war that ends all wars? Um, and um, so I think he had that in mind. And, and in that perspective, as much as I love music and as much as I, you know, Suzuki loved music, to him, music was a means to another end. Um, you know, as he'd say, character first, technique second. Uh, very good heart is number one. Um, so teaching violin was just a, a method for him to get to this uh, fostering of, of, of a heart that is open to loving other people, no matter who they are, no matter where they live. But being able to make those connections um, that we still so desperately need in this world. Yeah. So let's turn to your book on compassionate music teaching. I find the resonance of your work on Suzuki coming into play in your book, because in many ways, your book is looking at the embodiment of compassionate practices that are happening in these individuals that you profile, which kind of builds upon your scholarship on embodiment with Suzuki as well. I was wondering maybe before we really dig into the meat of the book, if you might introduce us to to the lived practitioner examples of Dorothy DeLay, Steve Massey, Brian Michaud, Marcos Santos, and Renee Tembi. Sure. Um, before I do, I, I want to um, note how you have <laughs> you've struck right on something, Kevin, that um, – I haven't really shared with a lot of people, but my work in Suzuki led directly to the book, uh, Compassionate Music Teaching, and, and hmm. earlier drafts of the book were actually all about Suzuki. Um, hmm. And then I, you know, I realized that it, it, it could be much stronger if it had uh, more, uh, uh, more of a variety of settings. Mm -hmm. Um, and that has proved to be the case, I think, but, you know, so much of the book was inspired, um, mm. by Suzuki. So, mm. and, and that philosophy. So, uh, Dorothy DeLay is the only one I did not interview. Um, she passed away before I worked on this book. Um, but I was, um, very fortunate to be able to interview someone who had done a lot of research on her as well as, um, you know, there are books about her. Um, and studies about her. So I, I did a lot of uh, historical study of Dorothy DeLay for the book. Um, she started out as um, uh, a graduate assistant with Ivan Galamian, um, and then they ended up teaching together at Juilliard. Um, one of the interesting things about Dorothy DeLay is um, when she was starting her own violin study, her parents were concerned that that she couldn't make 
a career in music, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is so funny because she most certainly did and beyond. Um, but uh, they uh, encouraged her to also study psychology, uh, Michigan State. And so you can see so much of her teaching approach um, in comparison to psychology. Um, the, the, she was notorious um, or famous, uh, depending on how you want to say it, uh, for, for constant questioning. Um, she'd spend so much time asking students questions rather than simply telling them what to do. Um, even down to the point of asking them their interpretations of F sharp, you know, what, what's your concept of F sharp or whatever it might be, asking students to really, really go deep and, and inward. Uh, which is great connection to what we've just said about Suzuki, um, to answer their own questions. And, and I write in the book about how Nadia Salerno Sonnenberg, um, was initially quite frustrated by this approach. You know, why am I coming here? Um, uh, sometimes I'd get so mad, I'd yell, I don't know. Why are you getting paid? What is this? I'm teaching myself. <laughs> um, but then she realized in hindsight, you know, um, uh, she was teaching me to teach myself and that's why she's a great teacher. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, Kevin, but I have found so often with students that, you know, that's when I know that I've arrived as a teacher is when I'm not really needed as much anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. that hopefully that voice, my voice will stay with them. And, and, and some of the things that I've said will always be in their hearts. Um, but at the same time, we get to a point where they're able to work quite independently. One of my favorite um, cello teachers, um, uh, Peter Rido, my dear mentor, um, would often say that the, the most important goal of a teacher is to become dispensable. And I don't know that I like the word dispensable, um, but at the same time, um, that is our goal, is, is to help um, students become uh, independent Um, and to think for themselves. Hendricks quotes a story from Angela Ahn about Dorothy DeLay. She taught me not only to play the violin to my best ability, but also to be assertive, kind, thoughtful, and caring. There isn't a more compassionate teacher than Miss DeLay. She had a knack for finding every student's individual strengths. She encouraged her studio to be supportive compassionate and empathetic towards each other. She taught us so much more than just violin playing. She taught us how to be professionals. For more information, I invite you to check out a delightful YouTube series with Dmitry Berlinski on Dorothy DeLay. In profiles of Brian Michaud and Dorothy DeLay, Hendrix relays compassionate pedagogy in which questions form a roadmap of dialogue with students a pedagogy of patience and curiosity. I love that Suzuki writes of patience as controlled frustration. (laughs) That's such a great quote. (laughs) But I was curious that, you know, in many ways, patience is the willingness to accept that learners are all moving on different time scales, you know, depending on how fast or how slow we all learn different things. 
And, and I wonder about, you know, in a world of benchmarks and efficiency and uniform timescales, like the, the notion of patience almost seems countercultural now. Can you talk about patience as a practice of compassion? Yeah. Um, for me, I could say patience equals curiosity. And we mentioned mm. that already a bit with, with Brian um, and that curiosity. But for me, it's, it's about asking questions. And, and yeah, I completely understand um, the life of a music teacher um, and <laughs> how there is a performance coming up and there is a principal asking for this and that. And, um, you know, there are standards that we're asked to um, meet. And so much of this, if, if I had if I had my way, <laughs> so much of that would go away and, and we would be able to um, engage with students uh, in a much less time structured way. I, so many of our motivations are based on, um, on production today, you know, getting this reinforcements. We have some really, really outdated motivational systems, many of them based in fear that never served us well. And um, we really need to trust that students will be motivated if they're working from a place of love rather than fear. And the moment we stop trying to capitalize what they're learning, how they're learning, but allow uh, a little more flexibility in, in that, then motivation is no longer a topic. I get myself out of a job, you know, as, a, as one who studies motivation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd love that. If, if it became a non-issue because everyone was doing what they naturally felt to do. And there are many, you know, like Montessori uh, programs, et cetera, that, that do a really good job with that. But I think you know, some of our public education structures have been so politicized that they've they've become a carrot and stick approach rather than an approach of of love and learning. Hendrix writes of Steve Massey as a compassionate music educator because he centers a deep love of music, community-centered practice, and invests in the leadership capacities of his students. Steve Massey um, taught right up the street from me here um, in Foxboro uh, High School, and had for many, many years, um, I'm, I'm thinking 35 years, I'll have to look that up, but for many, many years, um, had uh, an award-winning program, uh, uh, band program and jazz program. And um, he has interacted and, and uh, collaborated with some of the world's greatest musicians, um, including... Um, Wynton Marsalis, and who, who has um, given quite a tribute to Steve as well. But the remarkable thing about Steve's approach um, was his leadership classes uh, that he would have on Friday mornings. Early before school started, his um, student leaders would come and he would inspire them with uh, ideas about transformative leadership. And to the point that when he would have rehearsals during the day, the students would rehearse in a circle, which, you know, choirs do a lot, but concert bands don't do that nearly as much. He would be outside of the circle and the students would be working together, helping one another. Um, and uh, so 
So he wasn't the only one speaking, helping, but everybody had this idea that we're all here together to help each other. And the focus is on music. So competition took a backseat for him. Um, and instead, the focus was on cooperation, um, which also connects to Suzuki, right? That idea of cooperation versus competition. And I think that's one reason that his programs are not only so successful because they have the the you know they're they're using time very effectively because everyone's involved in helping everyone else improve but they also have been able to do remarkable things expressively because as we also said there's nothing holding them back from expressing who they are um there there's less of a fear factor <laughs> there but they're able to uh work together or produce together Courtesy of the Foxborough Public Access Channel, the following is an audio clip of a jazz band performance where Steve Massey was surprised and honored by jazz legend Wynton Marsalis. The clip begins with Massey introducing the next jazz tune from the concert stage, while Mr. Marsalis plots to interrupt these announcements with the surprised wail of a trumpet. The community embraces and honors an overwhelmed Mr. Massey. So uh, this uh, this is what it hopefully will sound like in New York. This is. Wait, wait a minute. Did you say New York City? Yes, I did. Essentially Ellington Festival. Yes, I did. Okay. I just want to make sure. Marcellus, ladies and gentlemen. Kurt Basher. Marcellus expresses his love and respect for Mr. Massey. The depth of love and respect that I have for Mr. Massey, what he represents to our culture, who he is as a man. Three attributes I want to ascribe to him and say that he possesses it with such depth and clarity and has exhibited it for such a long time with such intensity that he is most worthy of all of us being here 
today. I told him if I had to walk here, I would have walked here. I'd have felt better about being here if I had to walk or even crawl. That's the type of respect I actually have for this man. The first attribute is integrity. Integrity is a word that we hear all the time, but we see it exhibited very seldom because integrity costs. He possesses tremendous integrity, belief in meaning and the value of meaning. I always say when he walks into a room, all of our music is brought into the room with him because of the level of his integrity and the depth of it. Does not matter if he wins or loses something. What he believes in, he represents that in his very being and in his core and in his soul. And he is most for real. The second is love. Another word that's thrown about a lot. Right with love is sacrifice. He loves his kids. That's why they play the way that they play. He loves the music. He's willing to sacrifice for it. and He knows about it. Love manifests itself in knowledge. And he has been dedicated for such a long time. I don't, I'm not even going to repeat the number of years because it makes me blush. <laughs> and the last is soul and generosity of spirit. Those two go together. Soul means when you walk into a room, people feel better when you leave than they felt before you came in. This is what he has. And it is such an honor and a privilege for me to come here today and to recognize him in front of the community, in front of the kids who are here now. And I want you all to know the depth of love I have for this man and how that love is very little in relation to the love that our music and the musicians and the band directors and all the people that know who he is has for him, exhibits when they see him and the way that they speak when he is not there. So I represent all of them when I say more than a job well done, the definition of the job. Thank you for all that you've contributed and done. We love you very deeply, and you are great. Congratulations. I think your models of Steve Massey, you know, he's a great model because he seems to raise performances to those high standards and yet still balance that against a very intentional sense of wanting to create a sense of belonging and hospitality in his classroom. If I read that right. Yes, in your book. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, he tells the story of, of getting a, going to a competition and getting a huge trophy and the students turned to him and said, Mr. Massey, we don't have room for this. And what are we, where are we going to put it? Can we just leave it? <laughs> and he said, I knew I had arrived as a teacher because they were so focused on the music. And, mm. um, you know, at his retirement, his last Pops concert before his retirement, I was able to see how focused everyone was on that aspect of Steve Massey's program. It's all about the music. And the big accomplishments are having someone like Wynton Marsalis walk in the door and play with the students or having them commission a piece um, for him. I mean, that was the gift they gave him. It wasn't a plaque. 
It mm-hmm. wasn't it it wasn't a, a big framed picture of him. You know, you often see that the big framed picture of the maestro that, you know, they can put in their living room or something. That's not what they gave him. They gave him a commissioned piece and they noticed they knew him so well to know that that music and the creation of music was what really mattered to him. Um, far more than any sort of award or um, accolade he might have received. Then Brian Michaud is an elementary teacher uh, in Dighton, Massachusetts, um, and uh, just is uh, the embodiment of play. Uh, he prides himself quite a bit in uh, being like uh, Tom Hanks in the movie Big. He's just a big kid um, who gets to play with the students. But at the same time, he's so artful in the ability to structure and scaffold, um, but to consider students' needs, desires in every moment. One of the most remarkable things um, that I um, gained in my conversations with Brian has to do with classroom management, um, a term that I think, you know, classroom discipline is is most certainly an outdated term, but even classroom management, I think, in a way, is, is kind of outdated. If we think about, you know, this one person managing mm-hmm. other students, and he doesn't see it that way. He sees that it's, it's this um, facilitation um, of activities, I guess is a way to, to say that. But when students, um, when his elementary students kind of get out of control, as we might say, um, he turns to curiosity um, rather than a need to control or manage or change immediately. He goes into this mode of, I wonder, I wonder what's happening. And he doesn't take it personally, which I think is where a lot of um, music, well-meaning music teachers might go wrong, is if something happens in the class and there's some sort of disruption, uh, we immediately think that the students are, are against us in some way. And he doesn't see it that way at all. He says, oh, my goodness, what's happening and what do they need? What do I need? Um, and And it's less about us versus them. And it's all more about curiosity and and going with the flow of energy it's, it's quite inspiring then through the night you'll sleep away probably won't get up all day sing so if we move to the last construct of, of authenticity i love the the quote that you captured from Misha that there's an electricity or magic in the air when a teacher truly connects with a group of students You see them in front of their students and they're smiling and their students are smiling and they're laughing and there's something special about that connection because it's almost like they're one. I think so many of us music teachers, we've experienced that moment at some time in our lives. And for many of us, like that may be one of those moments when we decided to get into music. Sure. But yet it also sometimes it feels so far away to reach for that all the time because it's hard to get to that place of, of magic. <laughs> and, and I was just, just curious about what you'd experience with these great people about how they get to the space of authentic connection. Yeah. Well, and I, I appreciate that you said that because just like performing in general, um, we talk about this when we do performance anxiety workshops. So many of us um, 
have gotten into music in general because of some sort of magical um, moment where, you know, we were in flow and it just was, you know, just this, such a powerful experience. And boy, wouldn't it be great if we could be there all the time. But, you know, uh, the, the research on flow tells us that's impossible because mm-hmm. as soon as we get into that zone enough, it becomes, it's no longer challenging for us. And so we need more challenge to get to that moment the next time. Um, and so that's one aspect. The other aspect is, is that in life, these are special moments and they really are special and they're not going to happen all the time. And so, so when we think of musical performance and also the connection that we're talking about right now in terms of connecting with students, or might we say in any relationship we have with any human, there are, are really magical moments. And then there are moments that are quite boring and dull and other moments where there's conflict. But that's all part of the experience. And it's those moments of conflict or even those moments of boredom that make the magical moments so incredible. Um, so I think the first thing I would offer to music teachers, uh, myself included, is to have patience and understand that it's all part of the process. It's all part of the journey. And we shouldn't expect of ourselves that we're always going to have perfectly wonderful, uh, practically perfect in every way moments with (laughs) our students. Uh, But there will be moments of conflict, moments of crisis, moments of boredom. And we can take those moments of crisis and conflict and work through them to hope for and to create magical moments later on. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the great powers of music from from my perspective from peace building is that you know in, in peace building we recognize that peace is not the absence of conflict, but it's actually it's in many ways entering into conflict in a very genuine way. And I think musicians understand that uh, more than so many other areas about the importance of dissonance and the importance of conflict. Yeah, one thing I um have uh, been inspired to think about in future books is the idea of nonviolent communication. Um, I think that's um, something that, that I could have expanded on a lot more in this book, but the idea that we don't, well, and I guess uh, Renee does talk about that a little bit. Um, Oh, and so does Marcus, the idea that, you know, he tries to watch uh, various news outlets and to make sure he's understanding a variety of perspectives, um, because it's only through uh, working through moments of discord, as I say in the book, uh, it's only through working through moments of discord that we really begin to understand people in authentic ways. Hmm. I share Hendrick's admiration for June Boyce Tillman and her thoughtful scholarship on intersections between religion, spirituality, and music education. In speaking of liminal space and musicking, Boyce Tillman defines a lemon as a moment or space in which we move from ordinary knowing to a transformative encounter that tolerates and embraces paradox. It is a space-time where we are free to play, experience awe and wonder, and enter into, quote, a feeling of unity with other beings, people, and the cosmos. 
So what haven't I asked you that you wish I would have asked you about your book? I I don't know. I'm really impressed with how deeply you've read it, I have to say. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I don't know if this is important to say, but I, um, if you asked me what my next directions were. Mm, please. My next directions um, with research um, will be looking more deeply into the literature on trust. I think there's really something, I, I think there could be a whole book on trust and building and fostering and modeling trust in music learning spaces. I think that relates a lot to um, anxiety and, and our uh, inhibitions. Uh, uh, are we, do we feel fully safe? Um, mm-hmm. Do we feel fully brave? I'm challenging the word safe uh, as, as many um, uh, anti-racist scholars are doing right now, actually, uh, and thinking instead about um, terms like brave as opposed to safe. Um, but what can we do to foster uh, spaces of trust. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking of, of doing some research that looks into the ways that teachers versus students interpret trust to begin with. So I talk in the book about the different facets of trust and what might make a difference to me, kind of like we think about the love languages and the five love languages and, and how certain people have different love languages. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, and I don't know this, but this is where the research will go next. Do some of us have more salience with certain facets of trust than others? Um, and do we make assumptions as teachers that what we're doing to foster trust um, is what students really need to feel a sense of trust? I find so much interaction between the notion of trust and what we're learning about trauma now as you, as you use that word of safety. Yeah. But I, I think it's also fascinating because in the book you point out how you link the language of Freire to trust and how it can also be a language of a, a pathway into sincere dialogue that really helps us to work toward justice issues as well. And I, sure. I think it's, yeah, it is a beautiful connection. Our next two podcasts in this three-part series on compassionate music teaching will explore social change, circle practice, and empathetic dialogue with Marcus Santos, and notions of dignity and voice in refugee and multicultural choir settings with Renee Tembe. Special thanks to Foxborough Cable Access for permission to use the audio clip of Mr. Massey. Thanks to Brian Michaud for permission to use audio from his YouTube channel. And our deepest thanks to Dr. Karen Hendricks for her scholarship and exploration of compassionate music teaching that is explored in this podcast. Her book, Compassionate Music Teaching, is published by Roman and Littlefield Press. This is the Music and Peace Building podcast hosted by Kevin Shoner Johnson. At Elizabethtown College, we host a Master of Music Education with an emphasis in peacebuilding. Thinking deeply, we reclaim space for connection and care. Join us at musicpeacebuilding.com.